Welcome back to Lauren Roberts' Mental Health Counseling Intern. We have listened to some great interviews in the past episodes that have shown us that not everyone grieves the same and everyone grieves differently. In this episode, we will be talking with Dr. Rachel Haskell. Cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, neurolinguistics, bilateral stimulation. Can you kind of um, talk about each of those and um, how you know you utilize each technique when you're working with clients who are grieving? Right. Sure. Um, thank you for asking. What I usually start out with is cognitive behavioral approach just because that's really good for um, what most people expect from therapy, you know, when they first come in is to talk about what's been bothering them, mm-hmm. the reasons they feel like it's been bothering them and um, and of course in the case of grief, it's kind of obvious what's bothering them is that they're missing their loved one or maybe they were um, kind of loose ends, you know, they weren't able to get closer with that person and so there's possibly regrets or self-blame or just questions about what would have been, what could have been. And so what the cognitive approach does is it enables people to voice those concerns and those um, kind of questions in a way that's um, comfortable, relatively safe for people and expected, you know, kind of a predictable course of treatment. So I usually start with that and I try to find out how it is that they're viewing the death of that person. Do they view it as just the death of the body, you know, or do they view it as the end completely of that that person, you know? And um, so what are their spiritual beliefs? Try to find that out. Try to see how they're interpreting the death itself in terms of what it means about finality. And then also what it means that it happened. So depending on how they died, trying to find out if there's any self-blame or guilt around that piece, any thoughts, especially for kids, like, well, I was bad yesterday, you know, I lied about my homework, and now, you know, um, grandma's dead, you know, and so it's my fault, and so I try to look at what the distortions are that are resulting, and also what kind of, um, closure they might need mm-hmm. and, and then how they're perceiving themselves and the death of that person and what that means for their future. So I really want to get their worldview. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I start things and cognitive behavioral is good for that because it's talk therapy. Um, it deals with very conscious thoughts and paradigms and schemas about what things mean. Um, and then I try to challenge those distortions a bit. Like, um, do you think that the fact that you didn't do your homework really would have made grandma, you know, have um, such a, a worrisome, you know, reaction that she would have a heart attack? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. You know, um, grandma was tough, you know. Remember that time that she told you she hiked up a mountain or whatever it is, you know. So I try to find a way to challenge it in a very soft, um, concerned, but validating kind of way mm-hmm. and try to find the strength in the situation. So, um, you know, Grandma was someone who fought for um, fun. And she fought to be strong and, 
you know, you're a lot like grandma. She was so proud of you. And she's proud of you right now because you're talking about feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's really brave. And grandma likes anyone who's brave. And she's loving you right now. Um, so what do you know about um, death? And what do you think happens to someone when they die? You know, and so I find out that. And a lot of kids... Um, follow, you know, what they've grown up with, what their parents have taught them in terms of spiritual beliefs that they have. Um, and then other kids are very different from their parents, and they say, well, you know, they tell me at church that it's like this, but I think that it's really like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to assume anything. Right. So I try to put their perspective, what it means to them. So that's a cognitive behavioral approach that I used to start with. And then, if it does turn out that there's a lot of distortion, um, I challenge it gently. And sometimes what I'll do is use metaphors and um, say to kids, especially, again, who are much more likely to um, be open and honest, you know, kind of unabashed about their feelings, um, to say to them something like, well, you know how we have ice cubes and um on a hot day the ice cube turns from a solid like frozen form and it it melts and it becomes a liquid and they say yeah okay well you know how after a while if it gets even hotter that liquid disappears Mm -hmm. and it becomes a gas in the air and you can't see it anymore and they say yeah most kids know that um well, some people think that that's how we are, that when we die, even though we can't, the person can't see us, we're still there, just like that ice cube is still there. It's just in a form that we can't see or we can't touch, but it doesn't mean that the person who died is really gone. It means that they're around us and they're watching over us and that anytime we think of them they're there with us in our heart and so trying to use metaphors kids are much better all of us in fact Mm -hmm. are much better with metaphors and symbols and sensory talk than we are with vague concepts so the limitation of cognitive behavioral therapy in my mind is one, it relies too much on trying to help your client be rational. It talks a lot about irrational beliefs, irrational thoughts. Well, who's to say that something is irrational? That's a very culturally biased way to look at things. Any of us has our own perspective, especially when it comes to death. So, So that's one of the limitations of cognitive behavioral. Another limitation is it only speaks to that very logical part of our mind and often the way we feel about death is not logical it defies logic it defies science mm-hmm. sometimes and so it doesn't always reach the client the way it needs to mm-hmm. and in addition i am a believer that our subconscious and inner mind is far more powerful and that part of our mind typically um, operates at more of a level of a child so it's very responsive to symbols and sensory information 
So one of the reasons that, for instance, commercials are so powerful in changing our mind about things, about products we use, about the, you know, the kind of laundry detergent we use for our kids, um, clothes, Mm -hmm. for instance, one of the reasons they're so powerful is because in a very short time, they use action-packed slogans. They use rhymes. They use repetition. They use visual cues, colors. They use storytelling to convince us that their product is better. And then we change our behavior around that, even though it's just a 30-second commercial. Now, if we want people to change distortions that they have and the way they've been looking at things and get out of their own way, so to speak, to have a better life, to be happy through grief, to be moving forward, not stuck, um, and to have closure. That is theirs, that will help us move forward. And so if you want someone to change whatever they're doing, however they're thinking, then it helps to use sensory language, action-packed mantras, repetition, stories, metaphors to help the person wrap that inner part of their mind around the concept you would like them to grasp. And that's what hypnosis does. And that's what makes it unique. And that's what its strength is, is it speaks to that more powerful part of our mind that defies logic, that believes everything it hears, that believes what it sees and what it experiences. So that part of our mind, if you paint a picture of yourself, for instance, having a conversation with that loved one in the here and now, and telling them how you love them, how you wish you could have said goodbye, how you hope they're in heaven or wherever they are, that they're enjoying all the things they want to enjoy. And you can see them having fun and see them, I don't know, um, surfing, see them flying like a bird. And you can imagine their arms around you. That being able to do that speaks volumes our mind in a way that logical, rational, talking to their conscious mind just does not touch, cannot touch. And it's the deeper part of ourselves that needs the healing. Mm -hmm. Because if we could just stop ourselves from grieving because we want to, if we could just stop ourselves from blaming ourselves for things that we consciously know are not our fault by just being logical, mm-hmm. then none of us would need therapy. So therapists, I think, it behooves us to find a way to go beyond what's just rational and logical, beyond the conscious mind, to that deeper part of our mind that is still confused, sad, stuck in moments that we feel we can't change. Okay, so therapists um, kind of help encourage them to get out of that um, irrational belief that they can't, they can't heal and they can't go there. Right, right. And doing that 
by showing them, by, by using imagery, mm-hmm. that when they use imagery, their mind and their body become calm and serene and at peace. And they can envision closure and feel closure, even though the person is not physically there, even though the rational mind says, well, they're dead and we can't reach them. That other part of our mind allows for us to see it, feel it, hear it, experience it, and it is real. Mm-hmm. And in our mind, that inner part of our mind, when it's real, we can achieve closure, peace. So you kind of um, have CBT and hypnotherapy work together to kind of... Um, heal that person if, C- if CBT um, does not yes okay so you have, have them work together you don't do one or the other right they work together okay they work together because that way they have the grounding and the logic and the rationality of their conscious mind they have a good sense of what's here and now what's in the past what's you know something to look forward to in the future they're grounded in reality, quote unquote, right? What mm-hmm. we believe is a shared objective reality. Right. So we want to keep them grounded, but we also want to allow for, especially with death and grieving, the possibility that energy, spirit, um, who a person is, cannot be taken in with our senses in the here and now, but can be in our mind, and that that is just uh, even more comforting, that we want to help them just get comfort, and so if they're able to experience it in their mind, that other part of their mind, then they can achieve healing on that level, so we have a conscious mind, we have an unconscious mind, everyone knows that, most therapy only goes for the conscious mind, does not even attempt to reach the unconscious. So reaching that unconscious really means that we're helping the person heal on both levels. So that's why I use them together. And neuro-linguistic programming is a sort of, a kind of, uh, can be a hypnotic approach. Um, And um, that uses a lot of languaging. It says that language and our brain neurology actually influences our perception, our abilities to do and accomplish whatever we put our mind to uh, with certain limits, you know, certain limits, but physical reality being one of them. But um, that whatever we think about often creates neural pathways in our mind that get deeper every time we think of them, that become more automatic every time we think of them. So every time we have a thought, we're digging a deeper trench, so to speak, for that way of thinking. So that's their neurological kind of aspect of it. It also says that whatever we visualize, whatever we experience, is what we generally believe, whether it's logical or not. And it also says that our language creates our reality. So if I say to you, I tried to open the door, that means I didn't. Right. And so when someone says, I'm trying to get over this, what they're saying is, I'm not getting over it. I can't. 
And so it's better to say, well, how do you want to feel? And this is where language comes in. I want to feel whole again. I want to go out and see my friends and feel a smile come across my face and feel happy that I'm happy to feel my mom hugging me even though she's not physically here to feel her eyes shining on me and and feel her light next to me when I go to work that's what I want to feel that's how I want my mind to be working and so what an NLP person would say is then repeat that in your mind be there do that for a few minutes every day and it will build a neural pathway in your mind so that it will get easier and easier to feel her energy around you and that the way we speak to ourselves influences the way we view the world if we view and speak about ourselves as um, someone who's stuck, someone, if I say, I'm just a warrior, well, you know me, I'm codependent, or, uh, well, that's just me, I'm an anger monger, um, then it's like we're using the same language we would as someone saying, well, I'm a Caucasian female, I'm five feet tall. Right. We're saying, there's no way to change, you're in a box, don't even bother to try to get out, and then we wonder why the clients suck, or they wonder why they're stuck. Instead, we should say, well, how would you like to feel? How would you like to be viewing this? Well, I'd like to get out of my own way. I'd like to be someone who um, seizes the day, who takes this moment to remember that life is short, and gets out and eats better or goes to the gym. Um, I'd like that to be the message left behind by this person's death. And then that would be what they could repeat to themselves as a mantra, what they could visualize themselves doing before they go to bed, what they could um, identify themselves as instead of, oh, I'm a warrior, or you know me, I'm the depressed one, or you know, whatever it is. Right. I'm proud around everyone's day when I come. Everyone's party is ruined. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. So instead of defining themselves as a label or putting themselves in a box, mm-hmm. we can use language that opens the box. Okay. So that's what NLP does. And then it gives you self-help tips and things you can do very easily on your own to be successful at whatever you put your mind to. So really, NLP is the study of how neurology, language, and behavioral patterns can be changed to be successful and to work with the person's strengths to accomplish what they want to achieve. And it's really the study of successful people instead of what we typically do, which is in psychology, a study of pathology. So instead of studying pathology, NLP studies success. Okay. So that's how I use those three together. And then some behavioral reinforcement, rewarding themselves, um, good old self-care, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, fake it till you make it sometimes. Uh, Worse, too, you know, things like that. 
Okay, no, I definitely, I never, you know, when I was reading them, I kind of saw them each individually. I didn't think that all those together would would be a really great form of treatment for someone who's experienced a death and who is grieving. Yeah, yeah. And now the bilateral um, stimulation or the bilateral activity, what I use that for is if a person is really stuck. Okay. So let's say they keep replaying the same, I don't know, argument they have with that person over and over. Or they keep repeating the same trauma. If it was a traumatic death or complex grief, um, complicated grief, if they're replaying it, then um, that means their their body is remembering mm-hmm. and, uh, and their mind and they're in a loop where probably their right brain is repeating the same thing okay. and they need help bringing some balance to that instead of the fight or flight, play dead kind of right brain reaction to grief, memories, um, trauma, um, to exercise the eyes, which is attached to our frontal lobe of our brain. Uh, By exercising our eyes left to right, we are forcing the left brain to engage in the processing of that memory in addition to the right brain. So when the right brain has a memory, it just keeps replaying the emotion and the instinct, the physiology attached to that negative emotion. Um, So it is heavily emotional, but the left brain is more Mm language-based. It's logical, it's rational, and it's more mathematical. So it's uh, good at organizing information. And so what it does is it gives a place for that memory. It gives a timeline for that memory to be organized in, and it stops the brain from looping by placing it in the fabric of the person's life, the timeline of an entire life Mm -hmm. where there are many chapters, some good, some bad, but not just this one trauma, this one death that defined us, you know, instead of it defining us, instead of being where we started and stopped, it puts it in the fabric of a longer timeline, in a larger book um, with language and a system to organize the information so it can be digested, so to speak. Okay. And that's what the eye movement does. So it's kind of like a hard boot for the brain to balance itself, left and right hemisphere, mm-hmm. front and back hemisphere, um, or front and back. Um, generally, the back of our brain is our instincts, and the front of our brain is more logical, rational thinking, choice, okay. personality, things like that. So um, the, the other thing about bilateral is it just fades. So what it does is it fades the visceralness of it. Okay. It usually works through any flashbacks, nightmares. Um, intrusion symptoms. Okay, so it's EMDR, correct? Yeah, well, EMDR is one type, okay. and then there's, um, that uses eye movement, and then there's IRT, ART is Accelerated Resolution Therapy, mm-hmm. and that one's being used in Tampa. Um, it's evidence-based now. It's been shown to be evidence-based effective. They're using it at uh, the VA. They just got a big, big grant, cool. and so, um, that one's a really great one. I like that one even better than EMDR. That's just my personal opinion because it's more grounded than EMDR. Okay. EMDR uses free association, um, some 
psychodynamic techniques, they might not call it that, but I think they do. Right. And that's called flooding. And flooding generally is not as helpful for grief and trauma as grounding and um, and self-soothing mm-hmm. kinds of exercises, which is more ART and hypnosis um, and cognitive behavioral Okay. Wow. I didn't, I did not, I've never heard of, um, ART, so I didn't know that there was a huge difference. I think that's, because I've always been really interested in learning about EMDR, and I've always been, you know, with the whole, you know, with the flooding of the memories, you know, I've always been kind of weary of that, about how, like, you know, how people are going to process it all at once, so I'm glad that you've explained how the ART is more, um, yeah, more, more grounded. More grounded, yes. I, I more like directed. That. Yeah, it's really nice. And then the other one that's a good self-help tool as well as useful in therapy, especially if someone has a head injury or they have a history of seizures, mm-hmm. which, I mean, really anyone could have a history of seizures. They're much more uh, common than people think. Right. Um, and they can be trauma-induced or stress-induced at any point in anyone's life. So I'm always careful with eye movement as well. If a person feels strained, to have them close their eyes or use what what um, uh, they call tapping, which is left-right tapping. Okay. You can tap your knees. You can tap your temples. You can tap meridian zones. Um, EFT is emotional freedom technique. That's been around since the 70s. That's had a lot of good evidence behind it as well and um there are lots of videos on my youtube page about that okay um, pinterest page you can look that up but that one is really nice it combines a self-affirmation forgiveness grounding and also uh, uh bilateral well i guess the way they use it is not bilateral i use it bilaterally mm-hmm. they use it just straight as meridian zones and they tap to access um, those meridian zones and basically attempt to relax the instinctual response to that stress, which is the fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So um, EFT is very good. It's not traditionally bilateral, but I've made it bilateral because it's more effective that way. Or at least I found it to be. But, um, so those are the three major bilateral approaches. Okay. So with trauma, do you does your approach change? Um, I know you said you use the bilateral uh, stimulation with um, usually when you're working with trauma clients. So do you take a different approach when someone that's experienced a death that's been traumatic versus someone that hasn't? Uh, yes, I would say I'd be more likely to use the eye movement if they have had a traumatic death. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they're very, very stuck. Um, and the way I can tell if someone's stuck is if we try all the other techniques and it's not working. Okay. Because it's very unlikely that it won't work unless they're stuck. Um, and that usually means there's a major distortion underlying it that is trauma-based. That they've connected it to a trauma somewhere. And it may not be a trauma as we would see it, but it was a trauma to them. Um, and it's the client's perception that matters. Mm-hmm. So we're working within their paradigm, their schema. So, um, yeah, so I work to um, help them change the meaning of the death from whatever would otherwise be traumatic mm-hmm. um, to something more positive. 
So um, I'm not going to try to make it too positive because that might feel like you're minimizing their pain. Right. You know, you want someone to be able to vent their feelings and just dump it for a while. But you don't want to let it go so far, just dumping it, that the person is just reliving it and flooding themselves because mm-hmm. uh, that's not helpful. So if you see someone's flooding themselves, and usually you can tell because they'll drift off and kind of emote heavily, um, and then you can ground them, bring them back to where you are in the present and remind them that they're here, they're okay, and um, that person's in a better place. Hopefully they believe that. Um, and uh, so you ground them. And then uh, you can engage them in some bilateral uh, desensitization. Mm-hmm. And then I usually suggest a different meaning that they could try on for what that death means versus whatever meaning they've been giving it. So, um, and this is just something I do. I usually use the metaphor of um, trying on a pair of pants. Okay. So when you go to the store, you try on a pair of pants. If they're too tight, they don't feel right for you. They don't make you look good. You don't feel attractive in them. Um, they don't seem like a good fit. Then you leave that pants. You leave that set of pants on the rack. Right. Um, you pick out another set of pants. You try those on until you get a good fit. You don't just take home the first pair you see, the first pair you try on, just because they were the first pair. Well, what happens in the middle of a trauma or with death is it shocks us. Even if we're, we think we're expecting it, it's still shocking. Mm-hmm. So the shock to the system makes us come up with an immediate thought, usually a reactive one, usually a negative one, because that's what we typically do. We're looking for danger in our environment. So, of course, the first thing we do is think negative thoughts, right? right. Someone's trying to hurt me. I've done something wrong. I want to do the right thing. What did I do wrong? So you start thinking about distortion starts to happen. So the first thing um, that's helpful to do is to say to the person, well, you know, you you tried on this pair of pants, but it didn't fit. Did you take those pair home? And they go, no. Okay, well then we're going to look for another thought that you can have about what this death means. Because the first thought you've given it is not the only thought you could have about it. Let's give it a thought, a meaning that is positive or maybe not positive, but is helpful. So I'll take back the word positive. Let's take that word out. I take that back. Um, I reject that. But um, what I would say instead is let's come up with a meaning that is helpful appealing, possible, and intuitively feels like a good fit. Mm-hmm. And that's what I call the happy model. So the happy model for thinking is I'm going to experience life and interpret it with thoughts like this, thoughts that are helpful. Um, I'm glad they're out of pain now. Mm-hmm. Appealing. I'm glad they're out of pain now. Possible. It is possible, most definitely, they're out of pain now. And is it intuitively a good fit for me? Yes. So therefore, that thought, they're out of pain now, will be my chosen thought. 
I will focus on that thought, remind myself about that thought, picture them out of pain, make it really sink in, absorb that thought, instead of the first thought I had, which was, I stressed them out so much they died. Right. Right. Um, So now that thought does not meet any of those criteria. It's not helpful. It's not appealing. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, okay, it might be possible. So we'll give it a, yeah, okay, it meets one criteria. Um, maybe it's even intuitively correct. Okay, fine, it meets two criteria. But it doesn't meet all four. Right. And unless it meets all four, I'm not going to absorb that thought fully. I'm going to shore up my strengths and attach myself to a different meaning. Okay. And that's what I suggest people do. I really like that. It works. People love it. They're like, you mean I don't I don't have to think that way? Mm-hmm. Like, no, of course not. Of course not. In fact, when you came in and you told me what happened, and then you said what it meant to you, right? that was not even on my radar to think that thought so about you. Having them retrain their brain to think differently about what's, you know, how they've been feeling towards the death and how they've been feeling towards themselves. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so um, what do you see as, you know, when you work with your clients as being their biggest obstacle when they're going through counseling about working on their, their, uh, their grief with the death? Um, I think the biggest obstacle is thinking that death has to be the end of life for them. Okay. And that's the ultimate distortion. Whether they blame themselves or don't blame themselves, the, if the person meant a lot to them, there's a part of them that feels like they have to die with the person. And it's not true. So a lot of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Or that that person took a piece of them with them. And it may feel that way for a while. So that's the second thing. The idea that time will heal. Mm -hmm. Most people don't believe that until it happens. Right. Or they don't believe in their ability to get to that point. So it's usually self-doubt about being strong enough. And um, self-doubt about um, being happy being an option, that they should be able to be happy. Right. Uh, that it should be okay. So that's a, another thing. Or if they do believe it, let's say, you know, the person prepared them who was dying and said, I want you to be happy. That's my wish for you. And they're not feeling happy, then they're blaming themselves. And they're just saying, I'm weak. And they're beating themselves up for that. So then I think forgiveness of whatever they think they're not doing right. Right. To honor the person. Um, they need to let go of that guilt. And that would be my suggested thought is that the person wanted you to be happy. And I understand that you're not ready for that yet. And that's okay. You take your time. Take your time. There's no rush. But when you do, when that day comes, that you are okay 
yourself for whatever you think you're supposed to be doing. Because there's no one right way to do this. And guilt only blocks your energy from reaching them. When, when you are feeling guilty and tortured, it is hard for them if they are a spiritual person and they believe, let's say, that the person is still with them or that they're in heaven, you know, thinking of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it works. To, it's a helpful thought to say, um, maybe they're trying to reach you and they're trying to let you know that everything's going to be all right. But this guilt that you have is blocking you. So when that guilt subsides, that will be a good day. Mm-hmm. And that will be uh, yours because you deserve it. You deserve to be happy. And you deserve to feel that connection with them still. Mm-hmm. But this guilt is uh, its getting in the way. Right. Right. So I know uh, we t- yeah. uh, how you were saying how, you know, people, if they don't, you know, they, you know, when they come to counseling, they want to see a change right away. So how do you help, you know, encourage the client that, you know, hasn't seen change within that month, how do you encourage them and let them know that it is a lifelong journey and it's going to take more than just a few weeks of, um, of therapy and to kind of empower them to keep going? Yeah, um, I usually tell people that there's really no telling how long it will take, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not a, you know, they say it's not a race, right? Right. Um, so uh, there's no telling. And to enjoy the good days when they have good days and cry when they have bad days and then forgive themselves and look forward to the next good day. And that's really the best advice I can give them mm-hmm. as far as that goes. And um, that uh, grief is a process, you know, like everyone says, it sounds you know, naive to say, but it is. Mm-hmm. And um, and the other piece of it, I think, is that um, we're always in a, a rush for things to happen. But if we can learn to breathe through the pain and learn to soothe despite the pain, right? then we can uh, make it probably easier and more automatic than if we're fighting it and trying to push too fast, too hard. So, um, you know, with, do you feel like grief, um, death is normalized by society? Uh, no. No, I, I think it's, um, definitely seen as, um, not something we talk about or we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do, we kind of just don't talk about it. But a lot of people tell me that after someone died that was close to them, that their friends just stopped talking to them, stopped coming around, because it makes us uncomfortable to see people we love uncomfortable and not be able to do anything about it. It reminds us of how powerless we all are 
and it reminds us that when it's our time, it's our time, maybe, mm-hmm. and um, that we can't always see it, predict it, know it, get over it when we want to, that it reminds us that we cannot always control how we feel, Right. and it reminds us how vulnerable we are, Right. to love someone and lose them makes us sometimes, on some level, wish we never had them. But then we beat ourselves up over that because how could we ever wish not knowing that person? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's that other level of, um, especially for kids, you know, kids can normally smile about their eyes and their parents will smile. But this is the one thing that kids can't make their parents smile about, maybe. You know, this is the one time they saw their mom cry, you know, or their dad cry. They've never seen them cry. So this is like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, groundbreaking, world shattering, you know. If my dad is crying and I can't stop it, you know. So it's the first, sometimes first recognition of powerlessness. So I think that's what makes it hard to talk about. It's what makes it hard to normalize, quote unquote, because we don't like to normalize being powerless. And it's when you mentioned, you know, when they see their their father cry, um, I feel like that's a big, you know, a, a big surprise for most kids. And um, when you know they see other boys cry, because society, you know, tells the men, you know, not to have, you know, not to feel, not to show their feelings. So um, yeah, yeah, a lot of men have told me that they only cried when their dog died. So it's the only thing they were allowed to cry about is their dog. Right. You know, man's best friend. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, and you know, in school when, you know, if a little boy or, you know, a teenage boy, you know, cries, you know, in front of their friends or at school, I feel like, you know, do you feel like they feel ashamed because of um, how we perceive um, men's feelings in society? Yeah, I think they do. I think they feel ashamed, like they're weak. I think um, they think they have to be tougher than that, mm-hmm. to act like no one can get through to that level where they would cry. Right. You know, um, or do it private, you know, and don't let us see it kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like, what are you doing to me, man? You're making me sad, <laughs> you know, get away. Right. Right? Um, something like that, so... Even if they do understand it, they still don't necessarily feel comfortable with it. Right. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a tough thing. So another subject that people might not feel comfortable about right now is coronavirus. How do you think people that aren't, you know, comfortable with talking about death are taking this pandemic right now? Yeah, I think it's going to be a big challenge. Um, and... It's not like any of us like talking about death, really, but um, those, of, those of us who are more comfortable with it, um, and I'm not always comfortable with it, depends on the day, you know? right. um, but those of us who are more comfortable in that moment about it um, will hopefully be able to plan, you know, help people plan for it. If we have a loved one who's contracted the virus, then we should let them talk about the possibility that they might die mm-hmm. and what it means to them and um, do a life review with them so they can discuss, you know, the highlights of their life and what it's been 
for them instead of having the person say, no, don't talk like that. That's not going to happen. Right. Um, because if they're ready to talk about it, that's true whether it's coronavirus or cancer or what have you, that if they're ready to talk about it, we should talk about it. Let them talk about it. Um, let them talk about life, what their life has been, and what they want for us, and arrangements and things of that, how to honor them. And, you know, um, that's what we should do and not try to shut back down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a big thing. And, and what I guess I would say is that anxiety, probably in society now, is going to be going up. Uh, pretty high um, because this is spreading so rapidly and it's threatening not just people's health but our way of life Mm -hmm. and um, I personally am concerned about if we don't ever get back to a place where we or for a long time if we don't get back to a place where we're talking face to face you know um, I love telehealth like I said I'm a leader in that but um, I also know that people are kinder face to face than they are through text messages or telephone. Right. So um, at least having face to face, I think, reduces anxiety, enhances supports. So face to face is important. So I would say for people who are anxious, have a face to face with someone, even if it's talk about something completely different, just to have some semblance of normalcy. Keep a schedule like you always have, even if you're doing different things, but have a schedule. Don't make any rash decisions about anything, you know? Right. Um, and just um, self-soothe, engage your self-soothing skills. And that's one of the things I would say, especially in Western society, mm-hmm. we do not have a good ability to self-soothe in, well, at least the United States. Mm-hmm. I think we we are about um, action and fixing and curing and moving forward. And we need to also be, I think, balancing that with being present, mm-hmm. being mindful, enjoying what we have, you know, right. um, knowing how to self-soothe and not needing an immediate fix. Learning to be flexible with the way we think life should be, with what we expect from ourselves, from others. Mm -hmm. So flexibility and self-soothing and grounding. If we could learn those techniques, like we learn math and grammar, it would be really great. Um, Unfortunately, we don't learn that until there's a problem unless we're modeling it from our family or our support systems if we've never learned it there then the first time we're even going to hear some of those things is from therapy mm-hmm. and then that's a much longer uphill battle than if we learned it when we were young without having to think about it before right. anything was wrong you know mm-hmm. um, so yeah, for some of us, it's um, remedial. We're learning remedial skills, you know? Right. You know, the key word in all this sounds like prepare. You know, we should have prepared for um, 
ahead of time for this virus, you know, not, you know, kind of not waiting to the last minute to, you know, get toilet paper or hand sanitizer or learning how to wash your hands or waiting last minute to, you know, talk about how we're feeling about the death. So, I, you know, it's kind of, I feel like it kind of all comes together to, you know, talking about it and not waiting to the last second to ask for help. Right, exactly, yeah. That's a great way to look at it. You know, to prepare for it in advance as much as you can mm-hmm. without panicking right. will probably reduce the need to take extreme action later. You know, a stitch in time saves nine. So, um, talking with loved ones, keeping a support network, um, being flexible with what we expect from others mm-hmm. so that we maintain relationships instead of burning bridges. Right. So we forgive instead of cutting people off. Um, as long as they're, you know, of course, basically healthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to figure out what battles do you want to pick right. with your support systems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you stop talking to someone because they don't want to be a dentist and your whole family is, you know, dentist right. or do you have some flexibility and say well I think I'm going to be flexible on that expectation mm-hmm. um, you know I, I can see obviously um, discontinuing contact with someone who is destructive, deceitful you know um, that's different but someone who is just different making choices you wouldn't have normally made yourself um, that's what we need to be flexible and and when these pandemics come along right. it reminds us that wow we really have shut a lot of people out of our lives mm-hmm. that we sort of kept in definitely and it's hard to go back mm-hmm. so be flexible with one another be kind to one another you know right. find what makes us all similar what's common between us instead of what makes us um, different in a negative way. Right. I think difference in, difference in a good way is good. Celebrating difference in a good way is great. Absolutely. But, um, but definitely what makes us similar. It's all about supporting, you know, having that additional support, you know, especially when working with grief and even, um, you know, grief of death. And now some of the griefs that we're going to be experiencing with, you know, um, loss of a job, yeah. you know, um, not being able to, you know, talk face-to-face, you know, finances. So I feel like there's a lot of um, other conversations people need to be having. Right, right. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and speaking with me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And uh, thank you for all the hard work you're doing in this field. And you're going to be a wonderful professional out there helping change lives any day now so oh thank you so much i appreciate it all right thank you